Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. Well, my guest today is the Reverend Bill Boyd. He's a friend of our school. He is the pastor of Covenant Presbyterian Church, which is a neighbor to Samford University here in Birmingham. He's a graduate of the University of Mississippi and of Covenant Theological Seminary in St. Louis. I believe uh, you're on the board at Covenant Seminary, and it's a wonderful uh, minister of the gospel. Welcome back. You've been here before. Welcome back, Bill. Thank you very much. It's good to walk across the street. Yeah. Have an uh, enjoyable conversation. It certainly was last time. Now, let me just say a word about this church. Covenant Presbyterian Church is one of several churches that are part of our Beeson League of Churches. And we have a kind of partnership relationship with this congregation and with a number of others uh, in terms of support, encouragement for our students. And so this is a special blessing to welcome Bill back. Now, today, what are we going to talk about? Bill Boyd is, is a pastor theologian. And we could talk about almost anything within the body of divinity, and it would be of interest. But I suggested that we talk today about the Lord's Supper, because this is one of the most important things that Christians do when they come together as the body of Christ in worship. And it's a special feature of worship at Covenant Presbyterian Church. So, Bill, why don't we begin by you just describing what worship is like, say, on a given Sunday morning at Covenant Presbyterian Church and how the Lord's Supper fits into that. I'm tempted to say, well, I'll describe how everything else fits into the Lord's Supper. All right. <laughs> One of the reasons uh, I say that is several years ago I did some talks with some friends on reforming various aspects of church life, and I was assigned to reforming church worship. And I chose to entitle the talk uh, Moving from the Lecture Hall to the Banquet Hall. And that was not to denigrate the lecture or preaching um, aspect of worship at all, but it was to point out that the preaching aspect and the uh, dining aspect, we might say, are, are really go together hand in hand. And a lot of times I think in our tradition it's viewed as, well, preaching plus if you'd like, you know, uh, the Lord's Supper. But at our church, we have weekly communion, and the, as you and I talked earlier, the way I view it is kind of a three-part service. The beginning, there's praise, uh, a call to worship, a formal reading of God's Word, usually from the law, and a, a common confession of sin, uh, a formal and robust assurance of pardon, and after that, a passing of the peace, because after confessing our sins and being assured of pardon, we're not only uh, prepared to commune fully and robustly with God, we're actually com you know, prepared to commune fully and robustly with each other. And we actually have notes in the liturgy at that point that say that there will be communion uh, at the end of the service, and so that passing of the peace is actually an opportunity to go uh, to anyone who's present and confess sins or, or at least begin to, to make things right or, or, or if there's something that kind of needs to be said. As Jesus asked us to do. As Jesus asked us to do. So yeah. it's a very practical thing, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, even if it's simply to go shake the hand of someone with whom there's tension, that's a big deal. So then the second part of the service is real focus on ministry of the Word. That begins with prayer for the people of God, and we try to always center that um, Scripture. Um, and we have a ruling elder that does that prayer. And then we have the sermon. And then after that, we go to the Lord's table. And one thing... 
uh, well, I'll highlight two things about having weekly communion. One is that early on I told our session, our elders, that uh, as a preacher, I like having weekly communion because it keeps you honest. Mm. What do you mean by that? What I mean is uh, there are a lot of different things you can say in a sermon and a lot of different ways to say it, and there are a lot of texts, so to speak, uh, to, to come from it in the Bible. And sometimes the sermon has a lot to do with the text you read before it, and other times it, you know, unfortunately doesn't. And people at times might say, you know, well, that sermon really struck me today. Or other people say that sermon, you know, went over my head. Or or you see people who are asleep during, you know, the sermon or whatever it is. But I've never had anyone tell me that the Lord's Supper just didn't really hit them today. You know as a preacher that if the Lord's Supper is coming, that the gospel is going to be spoken in real uh, clear, concise specific terms mm. and so it would be good if what you were preaching fit into that <laughs> and that, that fits a good reformation theology model because the the preaching of the word and the visible words of god's what the reformers referred to the sacraments baptism of the lord's supper the visible words of god cohere. they inform one another completely so your point about the preaching and the table having a kind of resonance with each other Yes, and I think what it allows us to do as well is there's always um, – there are words of institution and, and a brief kind of teaching time that's available prior to the Lord's Supper. Uh, but the truth is, uh, I think when you have it weekly, what happens is the entire sermon in one sense is kind of like the run-up to the words of institution. It just They just – like you go in here, they go together. After a while, I think people, they don't – they just view them as, as two sides to the same coin. Does anyone ever say to you, this is taking too much time to have to the Lord's Supper every single week? Uh, the answer is yes. <laughs> um, usually they, they don't say that the Lord's Supper is. They just say, you know, that my sermon is. Oh, okay. so, um, which is back to our original point, you know. So. Well, uh, I have a copy of your order of worship here. I'm looking at it. And one of the things you do, uh, I think every you have weekly communions, and one of the things you do every week is to offer the prayer of humble access. Now, this is not, not something that comes originally from the Presbyterian, but from the Anglican tradition. It was a prayer of Thomas Cranmer. It's in the Book of Common Prayer, so it has a more Anglican feel to it. I'm going to read it because some of our listeners may never have heard it before, and then maybe you can comment on it, on what it means and why you think it's important to do this. We do not presume to come to this your table, O merciful Lord, trusting in your own in our own righteousness but in your manifold and great mercies we are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under your table but you are the same lord whose property is always to have mercy grant us therefore gracious lord so to eat the flesh of your dear son jesus christ and to drink his blood that our sinful bodies may be made clean by his body and our souls washed through his most precious blood, that we may evermore dwell in him and he in us. Amen. What's that about, Bill? Well, for one thing, it's one of the most breathtaking um, prayers that I've ever come across. And I think uh, Cranmer, who had a particular gift for uh, wedding scriptural language, into a coherent whole, uh, you know, was fully on his game the day that he wrote that. Uh, I don't view it primarily as coming from a tradition, though. I just view it as coming from the Gospels. Um, it's a prayer that is reflecting Jesus's very strange interaction uh, with this woman. 
uh, who comes to him and he seems to deny her and uh, he actually, in my opinion, is speaking what's on the disciples' minds, you know, um, you know, and he he refers to her as a dog, and she, but in doing so, he gets into a debate, and all of a sudden, she has the winning line, you know. Uh, yeah. But but even the dogs get to eat the crumbs under the table, you know. And she was an outcast, right? She's was, an outcast. Yeah. He's he's dialoguing with her. Not only that, he it's like he throws her the alley oop pass. Yeah. You know, and and it you know all of a sudden. Uh, I, I think everybody probably is standing there going, who, who is this man? You know, once again. And for me, having that prayer in our service, it's a wonderful reminder to our people uh, of just the nature of the gospel itself. Yeah. It's, it's a reminder to them that we are knit together in the church Catholic uh, with lots of other traditions and that some of them have things to offer us that we just simply don't have in our toolbox. And I would say the Anglican liturgy uh, is, is a pretty rich Uh, liturgical tradition and the other thing it does is it is so poetic and so biblical that it it sticks in people's minds in a very special way and um that phrase you know whose property is always to have mercy that's quite a phrase that's a phrase that makes you wrestle with the nature of the gospel yeah and the nature of god and the nature of god and his heart and his um stance toward us I thought in thinking about uh, the attributes of God, and of course we have a long list, omnipotence, omnipresence, omniscience, on and on and on, that the attributes of God come to a focus in two of them in particular, holiness and love. And this particular phrase, whose property is always to have mercy, seems to be right at the center of holiness and love Mm. as we think about the reality of the great God who made the world and everything in it and who forever has known himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. His property is to have mercy. Well, we, we could spend forever on that, that one. I, I do have to tell you a little story. When I was uh, once in England participating in a conference in the city of Norwich, and we had a beautiful worship service that included communion at Norwich Cathedral. It was Anglican. The bishop was presiding. And he left out the prayer of humble access, just completely left it out of the liturgy entirely. Uh, which you can do, I think, uh, in the Church of England. And so I went up to him after we had a little chat, and I said, well, Bishop, this is a beautiful liturgy, but where is the prayer of humble access? Oh, we've gotten rid of that. We don't want to grovel anymore. <laughs> we've moved beyond that. <laughs> well, I'm glad you haven't moved beyond that at Covenant Presbyterian Church. Well, he dropped that crumb, and we picked it up. You know, so, there you go. Um, well, let, let's, let's still focus on communion. There's so many things we can talk about um, I want to talk about what it actually means and does for us uh, spiritually Hmm. in terms of our communion with Christ. And I'd like to quote actually a letter from Calvin, John Calvin, uh, a letter to Peter Martyr Vermeule. Peter Martyr was an Italian who came north of the Alps, uh, became a great teacher of the Reformed Church. He was in a number of places, including Zurich and Strasbourg and eventually England. Anyway, Calvin wrote to him in 1555, this was after Peter Martyr had moved to England to participate in the work of the English Reformation. And this is what Calvin said, For although the faithful come into this communion on the very first day of their calling, this communion, this konyonia with Christ, nevertheless, inasmuch as the life of Christ increases in them, He daily offers himself to be enjoyed by them. This is the communion which they receive in the sacred supper. So 
how does communion in the sense of the Lord's Supper help us to grow in Christ, or as Calvin puts it, allows Christ to increase in us? An interesting place to start would be that uh, if we take the sacraments together, there's a big emphasis in the Presbyterian tradition and the Westminsterian tradition, and of course, the sacraments. And with baptism, there's an emphasis on uh, this concept of improving one's baptism, is mm-hmm. the word that's used. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's it's really uh, just that idea of sanctification or what might be called progressive sanctification of, of actually walking forward, you know, uh, higher on, deeper in, to use Tolkien's kind of language, you know, with Christ. And so one way the sacraments work together, you know, along with the preaching of the Word is that uh, as we uh, enter into the church uh, in our baptism, then actually the Lord's Supper is one of the means of grace that enables us to improve upon that baptism, to mature in Christ. And I think you were asking, well, how, you know, how does that work or how, how is it – what is it doing? What's as, your Eucharistic theology? You yeah. know, I come from I'm, – I'm a Southern Baptist and um, many people in the free church tradition uh, have this language of speaking about the Lord's Supper. Is It's merely a symbol. Right. Uh, it's, 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 yes, it's important because Jesus said we should do it and therefore we do it every now and then. But it doesn't mean all that much. I mean, it's merely a symbol. It's the way you remember Jesus. You think about what he did on the cross. Be thankful. But that's about it. And it seems to me that both Paul, in using that participatory language, koinonia language, and certainly Calvin in his Eucharistic theology, is wanting to say that there is something really deep and real going on here that draws us closer into the reality of our life in Christ. Um, I've come to think that uh, our Eucharistic theology, which in essence comes down to how we deal with uh, tension, the kind of tensions that we're called to hold, you know, such as the Trinity, one God, three persons. And in uh, the Lord's Supper, we're saying that, uh, you know, there is one Lord who is fully human and also fully God and now who is present with us in some way. And it, it, all of those kind of things are – it's a call to um, – well, faith is what we would say as Christians, to hold things um, mentally, physically, spiritually in what for us we would say are, are these tensions that seem incongruous, they're difficult for us to pull together, and at the same time we know that we're called to acknowledge seemingly competing truths. And the Lord's Supper to me, it, it one way to put it would be that our theology – of the Lord's Supper will determine ultimately how we deal with physical things in the world mm. or how we define spirituality. I think you could say the flip side, too. You could say that um, the way that we are dealing with physical things in the world and the way that we are dealing with other people and with situations, it's going to tell us actually the way we think about God and how we are dealing with these Tensions. And I'll use an illustration of that that, um, you know, when Jesus, when he uh, fed his disciples on the night in which he was betrayed, it's been noted throughout the centuries that he didn't take um, shocks of wheat and bunches of grapes. Mm. He took bread and wine. Mm. And to this day, people marvel over 
um, the cultural uh, richness of, of cultures that really have brought bread making and wine making and things of that nature to the kind of heights that just something like a simple loaf of bread with some butter on it can make you sing, you know, or that uh, there's wine that, um, you know, there's wine and then there's wine. And uh, it, it seems that what Jesus is doing is saying, look, by my body and blood, uh, this cultural mandate of going forth and filling the earth and subduing it is being renewed. Mm. And in me, you can be confident that as you go out and participate in these basic aspects and these very physical, earthy aspects, things like making bread, making wine, eating bread, eating wine, sitting at table with other human beings who are made in the image of God. Jesus is saying, you can be confident of this. And as much as you are doing that in my name, I'm there and I'm at work. This is my world. And I think without that, uh, with that, we as Christians are able to be confident that God calls us to very basic, real things. So it goes hand in hand, I think, with the reformational idea of doing all things to the glory of God. Yeah. No, that's great. And you know, you're pointing to the incarnational dimension of the Christian faith as we see it lived out uh in the the sacraments of the church, especially uh, uh the Lord's Supper we're talking about today. Now, uh within all of our traditions, there are there is a spectrum of different theology about communion. I I mentioned um, the, the, the Baptist tradition that sometimes is more minimalist. However, there is in the Baptist tradition this wonderful, rich, Eucharistic heritage and talking about the Lord's Supper, going back especially to the Baptist confessions of the 17th century, where we talk about, uh, in language very familiar to Calvin, uh, communing with Christ and, and, and the body and blood of Christ being made real to us by faith and through the power of the Holy Spirit. And the same is true within Presbyterian and even with Anglican, your high church, low church. seems to me those are things in a way that we need to transcend. We're not locked into a particular tradition. We want to be drawn closer to Christ. And he offers himself to us in this way. And why do we need the Lord's Supper? Well, why don't we just you know make a decision for Christ and that's it? And the answer is because we are pilgrims. We are weak. Uh, we are needy. And we need this nourishment that comes to us uh, in these symbols, but symbols that are laden with significance and meaning of the body and blood. Let me read you one more Calvin quote and have you comment on it. This is from Book 4 of the Institutes. If we refuse not to raise our hearts upwards, we shall feed on Christ entire, as well as expressly on his flesh and blood. And indeed, when Christ invites us to eat his body and drink his blood, there is no necessity to bring him down from heaven or require his actual presence in several places in order to put his body and blood within our lips. Amply sufficient for this purpose is the sacred bond of union with him when we are united into one body by the secret agency of the Holy Spirit. That's a rich, multi-layered presentation of the Eucharist. What do you think about it? My understanding of Calvin's doctrine, which, um, you know, he, he, he spends a good deal of time explaining his thoughts in this in the Institutes, but uh, 
one thing he's really known for was his you know extra Calvinisticum, meaning that Jesus was present in the Lord's Supper, extra the flesh. The emphasis being Jesus really is uh, physically, um, actually, uh, at the right hand of God, and he's not a thousand places at one time. He's one place at one time, and yet he is, as Calvin put it, really uh, present with his people uh, in the Supper. And a way that I like to think about this that helps me in my own weakness, I think, it's just that uh, symbols are not, yeah, mere, as you mentioned earlier, that they're real. And we, we actually are living symbols. You know, We're told that we're made in the image of God, and therefore we're designed in our walking and thinking and breathing and being to, um, to image him, that is to send forth information about him in a sense. And, and you can always say more in a symbol than in any other way. Symbols, you know... Um, uh, we always know more than we can actually give lip service to. We just can't ever explain all the various things we, quote, know, end quote. And to me, the Lord's Supper is that way. It's God communicating to us. It's just that there's always more there than we can take in. Mm-hmm. And um, I think you, you see Calvin kind of wrestling with that, where he's trying to say what's actually happening, how God is present how we feed upon him, how we commune with him and one another. And he's struggling to give voice to something that um, we can give voice to. We just can't fully give voice to it. And so I I like what he has to say there. I don't know that I would say, you know, he was finished when he finished. No. Well, I mean, this is an element of mystery, the union with Christ and the, the power, the agency of the Holy Spirit. This is what's unique about Calvin's theology, I think, over against, in some ways, Luther, mm. with whom he was so closely related in many other ways, or over against the, the Catholic medieval tradition, uh, is this focus on the Holy Spirit who lifts our hearts into heaven where we commune with Christ, really and not just figuratively. Uh, but there is a real spiritual communion going on there. Yes, and as I emphasized earlier, that from you know, I think there's this underlying emphasis in the Lord's Supper on Jesus as the second Adam, who uh, in Him we are able once again to begin to fill the earth and subdue it, to take that cultural mandate in hand. There's also this emphasis, though, on what you're saying, what Calvin is emphasizing on heaven and earth touching, yeah. Yeah. and on us communing in the heavenlies. Um, and it's even that uh, I like some of the theology of the communion of the saints, that we are communing with those who have gone before us. Yeah. And uh, even the writer of the Hebrews seems to really uh, be thinking about a lot of these things. I always think about that at the Lord's Supper, that we're, we're just not there with the people in the room with us, but there is this body of Christ throughout time as well as space. And in a sense, that communion that takes place uh, encompasses all of the people of God uh, throughout history, those we see, those who have gone before us, and in a way those who are yet to be born, who will come after us, who are a part of God's elect. 
Yeah, it seems like it is both in time and space that we're communing. But to use Calvin's language, we might be able to say it's extra. Yeah, it's yeah. out of yeah. time and space. Uh, is yeah. is beyond. It's more than. Yeah, so. it's good. Um, we're almost out of time. What a rich conversation this has been, Bill. I appreciate you're willing to talk about this because you're interested in it. And right, well, is a very much a part of your your life in worship as a church. Uh, if you're not interested in that, you know, I should probably. Find something else to do because this yeah. is at the very heart and, and at the core of what we do as uh, pastors. My last question is: It's a pastoral question. How how should pastors? How how can pastors better teach their congregation about the meaning, the significance, the reality of spiritual communion with Christ in the Lord's Supper? The first thing that comes to my mind is a, a story that one of my uh, one of the ruling elders at Covenant. Press told me right after we went to weekly communion, and the way we do it is we have people come forward and fan out in the front of the church, and then we have four different stations up front, three different stations in the balcony, and one person uh, will serve the bread, and another person, and they're always elders, will serve. Occasionally, a deacon will help with this, too. And Although we believe that anyone could do it, it's just a good opportunity for officers to really be face-to-face with the people once a week. And so someone saying, looking at someone in the eye and saying, the body of Christ given for you, you know, the blood of Christ poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And of course, you can add other things that seem pertinent in light of what the sermon was or other things. And so this ruling elder, who's an attorney here in town, his daughter was visiting from Atlanta, and uh, she's single and uh, has a successful career over there. And um, they went back home, and, and she had tears in her eyes, and she said, Daddy, she said, um, I've got to tell you that I realized today during communion uh, that the elder who served me and told me that Jesus loved me and died for my sins, that it's the first time that a man other than you has ever looked me in the eye and told me that. Mm-hmm. And our officers have begun to realize that communion is very intimate. It's intimacy with God and it's intimacy with one another. And it, and it it has dawned on many of them from what they've told me that they're actually called to minister the gospel to the congregation. And this has given them a way to do that that's so far beyond anything they, never, they ever imagined possible. And the congregation um, has realized that at the same. You have different officers each week telling you the same thing and i think that's one of the ways that the lord brings the gospel to take root in our hearts and our minds um it's the way he brings about assurance of salvation it's the way he presses us on in that improving of our baptisms and to me it ties together too with what john says that um if you say you love god who is invisible but you do not love your neighbor who you can see At best, you're very confused, you know. Well, it's been a wonderful conversation. My guest today on the Beeson Podcast has been the Reverend Bill Boyd. He is the senior pastor of Covenant Presbyterian Church here in Birmingham, Alabama. Thank you, Bill, for this conversation today. My pleasure and privilege. Thank you. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. 
We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.